I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we are live. And today is a special episode. Do you know why? Why? Because today's episode is brought to us by Lisa King, who requested this episode. Really? Yes. So okay. if you are out there listening and have a particular request for a escapade of spies or assassinations or other type of espionage-related activity, let us know, and we will see if we can incorporate it into an episode of Spies and Lies. Okay. That's interesting. Let's see what it's all about. So thank you, Lisa, and we hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, don't forget to leave a review. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Chanel. Number 7124. Coco Chanel, fashion icon and legend, who lived a life of rags to riches, reached heights few could ever dream of. But behind her glamour, she hid a web of secrets, and perhaps a view of the world shaped by bitterness and hate. She once said, My life didn't please me, so I created my life. And she certainly did, constantly taking every advantage and opportunity she could while creatively curating her past as she attempted to erase any blemish that could be a mark against her. But some secrets, despite her efforts, could not be hidden as we explore Coco Chanel's secret life and the surprising truth of Nazi Obver agent number 7124, codenamed Westminster. So... What do you think of our friend Coco Chanel here? Well, we all know her for her perfume and for her... Little black dress. A little black dress, I suppose so. But less about her professional as a spy. And actually, I wasn't aware of it that much. And when we looked into it, it was quite interesting because a different angle to it than we've never done before. Although I thought about it, that actually she was operating... A little bit in the same, we would say, Matahari environment of Paris. Or different time period. Different for time sure, period, yeah. but but it's 
it's interesting, the similarity. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking of, of Matahari as well and our episode on her, which I think was a great episode. Um, I think so too, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but it, it, it did remind me. So I definitely see what parallels you're, you're drawing. Matahari, for those who didn't listen, World War One also operated uh, primarily in the France area, though she traveled and perhaps a little misunderstood over time. And I think we might have a somewhat similar situation here, though I think it's a little bit more complex. So why don't you tell us a little bit about her before we get to this period of spying of hers? Excellent, why don't we? Born in 1883, though a lady shouldn't tell her age, Gabrielle Coco Chanel grew up in poverty in the Loire Valley of Western France. Her mother died when she was 11 and her laborer father sent her and her two sisters to a Catholic convent slash orphanage and never saw them again. Chanel later was moved to a Catholic boarding house when she was a teen and learned to sew both in her childhood and in the orphanage. Given the choice of taking the veil or leaving when she was an adult, she decided on taking the veil. And thus ends our story. Just kidding, she wasn't a nun. She, of course, decided to leave. You nearly, I thought, I thought I can go now. <laughs> now, something to note is at the time, the Catholic Church was extremely anti-Semitic, uh, especially after what was known as the Dreyfus Affair in France. Now, the Dreyfus Affair, for those who don't know, in 1894, there was the arrest, trial, and conviction for high treason, based on false evidence, I must say, of the Jewish-French artillery officer, Alfred Dreyfus. And it caused quite a stir in France at the time, and it was all over the the newspapers, and it really became a a rallying point for um, the national conversation in France at the time, and stirred up a lot of anti-Semitism as well. And uh, the Catholic Church was one of those who really got on this bandwagon of anti-Semitism. So that was part of her childhood, and that will become relevant later, as we will see. Now, author Hal Vaughn, who I will be referencing quite a bit throughout this episode, wrote a very informative book called Sleeping with the Enemy. Now, Hal Vaughn was a former diplomat who was involved with the CIA before becoming a journalist. In his book, he wrote... Chanel could not have escaped the Catholic Church's propaganda campaign against the Jewish officer Dreyfus, expanding that Chanel's fear and hatred for Jews was noxious and notorious. Now, this combined with World War II, we will come to see, might have significant ramifications. But in the meanwhile, in 1903, at 20 years old, Chanel found work as a seamstress for a draper and his wife, who often employed nuns' charity cases, as they called them. In her spare time, she sang at a cafe visited by cavalry officers. Thus, her singer name, Coco, was born, taken perhaps from one of the songs she sang. Or it could be said that it came from the French word cocottes, which is kind of a high-class prostitute or courtesan during the French Second Empire. That's what they were called. Also was a term for an elegant prostitute in the 1860s. It was originally intended to use to refer endearingly to small children, and today can also refer to a cast iron cooking pot. So who knows what it actually meant, Coco, what it was inspired by. But we can make our own assumptions. She was a beautiful girl working in a cafe, wanting to get ahead, and she did have a reputation later of entwining herself with powerful men to get ahead. So maybe she had a reputation or took the name to entice as you said, she wanted to make her own history and her own name, and this was the beginning of it. Yes. What's in a name, after all? Not much. 
Not much. I mean, you can change them as often as you can change passports, right, Dad? Continue. (laughs) So, as I said, Chanel was beautiful, smart, and witty, and she spent her 20s to 40s basically romancing and entwining herself with one man after the next. However, there was one thing in common with these men. They tended to be wealthy and powerful, of high society, and who were able to introduce her and connect her to the upper-class world. Moonlighting at a tailor shop frequented by officers at the time, Chanel met Etienne Balsan, the heir to the largest textile company in France, who produced French military uniforms. In 1906, Chanel, at 23 years old, became his mistress, mingling with the upper class, learning to ride horses and all sorts of other skills. Famously, one day at an event when there were a bunch of people and she didn't want to wear a constricting kind of dress, she took his clothes and cut them apart and came out wearing sort of a a mishmash modern thing with his clothes that were more loose and it set off this fashion trend that would set her on a course to become the icon that we know today. Well, she was willing to take risks. And risk-taking is a necessary skill for espionage? It is helpful to have that. Do you take risks? Never. Never heard of a word of that. <laughs> I've asked you this before, actually. It's funny. Then a twist occurred in 1908, because Chanel began an affair with Etienne's English friend, Arthur Capel, playing the pair off one another at first, as they showered her with gifts. And eventually, Chanel opened a fashion boutique in Paris with the help of Capel. In 1910, Chanel Modes opened at 21 Rue Cambon in Paris, Capel and Chanel becoming partners and ever closer. Chanel Modes attracted socialites from across Europe. It was women's fashion, but finely comfortable and stylish, not restrictive corsets and fabrics that were choking and uncomfortable to wear. Have you ever had to be undercover in women's clothing, Dad? I have to think about it. The answer is no. Oh, okay, all right. Anyway, Chanel quickly paid back Arthur Capel's investment as the business became a massive success. But then, in 1914, World War I broke out. However, that created an opportunity. Chanel's business leaned heavier into functional clothing, women now in the workforce, and needing to wear something that they could work in, her success only growing. I think this is a really illustrative point for Chanel, that she takes adversity and turns it into an opportunity. Yes, you could say that uh, she took her destiny in her own hands. And uh, I think that was one of her characters all her life. But she was always dependent on other people and powerful people. And sometimes you can gain something and sometimes they want something from you. It's when you, they want something from you when it becomes tricky. And this is what we will get to when we start talking about the next stage of her life. In 1918, the same year World War I ended... Arthur Capel told Chanel that he would be marrying an English aristocrat. After all, he was from the upper crust society and he couldn't be gallivanting around with a lady. Yes, a lady like Chanel, even uh, even though she was becoming a a success. It was still a time when aristocracy mixed with aristocracy, darling. Uh, Yes. Their affair and business relationship, however, did continue after the marriage. But then, in 1919... Arthur Capel died in a car accident. It was said to be the one and only time that Chanel cried. To Chanel, he was the true love of her life. And as a result, Chanel's focus turned with a new fire to her business empire. Chanel's quoted as saying, In losing Capel, I lost everything. What followed was not a life of happiness. 
It's a pivotal turning point in her life. Yes, it's a, that's what makes you or breaks you. And uh, in her way, she uh, she decided to take a certain direction and uh, to make Chanel Chanel as we know it. Yes. In 1921, Chanel released the perfume Chanel Number no. Five, cementing local success in Paris and among her upper crust clique. However, she struggled with world reach and supply chain capabilities until a friend of hers named Bader, the founder of a Paris department store, introduced Chanel to Pierre Wertheimer at the Longchamps races in 1922, Pierre Wertheimer being a longtime fan of horse racing. Now, Pierre Wertheimer and his brother, Paul, were both Jewish and venture capitalists. In the 1920s, they were already extremely wealthy due to a family business of makeup and perfume. It was a massive conglomerate that sold in the U.S. and in Europe. Due to the Wertheimer's proven commerce expertise and their familiarity with the American marketplace, as well as the resourcefulness of their capital, Chanel felt a business alliance with them would be fortuitous. In 1924, Chanel agreed to the Wertheimer's backing her to launch her perfume line and reach a global market. They created the new entity called Parfums Chanel. All of this for a mere 70% share of the company. The Wertheimer's brothers agreeing to provide full financing for production, marketing, and distribution of Chanel No. 5, while Bader, the one who connected them, was given a 20% share, leaving 10% for Chanel to license her name to Perfumes Chanel, and removing herself from involvement in all business operations. Within 10 years, Chanel was one of the richest women in the world. Now, we might think these numbers are a bit extreme. What do you have to say about this? She trusted her partners to take her to places she could not have imagined to get to. And at the time, it was the right thing to do. They took a risk on her, and they succeeded. She, of course, didn't get a lot, but she got enough to become very, very wealthy. And, of course... And she was removed from all of the business of it. She yes, didn't have because to do she didn't have any experience in that, so well. that's okay. But, you know, you become greedy, and then things happen. So what happened? Well, before we, we, we jump over to that, I just want to address these numbers because this becomes a, a, a big issue for Chanel. And in today's world, we think, wow, how could she have agreed to this? They totally screwed her. And yes, the numbers are not in her favor, certainly. But we have to remember the time period, the context of the situation. She didn't have any business experience. She was not doing anything as far as the production and the supply chain and everything. She was a little tiny boutique in Paris. Of course, now we think of Chanel's worldwide, that this company was going to take and explode Make it you a worldwide. It. Exactly. Yep. Yep. You know, you think about like Microsoft coming in and buying the little app company in the middle of nowhere. So it's the same kind of deal. Microsoft or Apple is going to buy your tiny little app. You're going to get a small share, but you're going to get shot everywhere. So in that context is how you have to think about the situation. And of course, with that said, her not being business educated and business savvy, I'm sure that the numbers were skewed less in her favor. I mean, I think Bader getting 20% and her getting 10 is ridiculous. I didn't think they, th they thought that it would be so successful as it was. And that they too. did a favor to the guy and, you know, said, okay, let's see what happens. And it just picked up and became amazingly successful. Absolutely. So when it's successful and it picks up, why, why do you give up your 70% or your 20%? Well, that's and then And then she's stuck with the 10%, but even with the 10%. Well, as we said, she became, became one of the richest one women in the world. In the world. Yeah. So, you know, 
Not, not too bad of a deal. Right. But again, I want to put it in context for today's world. Imagine the big tech company, Apple, whatever, buying up a little tech Don't. As you know, even now when you sign new contracts, if you're not known, you don't get a lot. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's what I'm trying to yeah. put. So when we say Chanel, we think, oh my God, this is great. And yes, it's not fair, but also context. Okay. So, however, why would Chanel do this business with these Jewish people if she was so anti-Semitic? Well, at first, she was able to put her anti-Semitism aside for the sake of business. However, as time went on and the 1930s saw the rise of Nazism with more fervent anti-Jewish rhetoric spreading, Chanel's views began to sour more and more on the Wertheimers. Speaking of Pierre Wertheimer as the bandit who screwed me. Not the nicest words. I'm sure she could have used less nice words, though. Well, maybe it was the truth. We don't know. Sure. True as well. We, we don't know. At the same time, I'm going to go back to 1923. Chanel is 40 years old. This is a year before she signs the deal with the Wertheimers. And in 1923, she's introduced to the world of English royals by a close friend, the British socialite Vera Bate Lombardi. Among the people she's introduced to are the Duke of Westminster and Winston Churchill. The Duke of Westminster and Chanel almost immediately beginning a 10-year romance. Now, the Duke of Westminster's anti-Semitism was intense and well-documented. He also had a lot of pro-Nazi sensibilities. Not only him, but also many in his circle. What was the effect on Chanel? Maybe this was his appeal. Difficult to know, obviously not something that was advertised or written about. But this certainly would have played an effect. Chanel and the Duke of Westminster tried very hard to conceive a child, but they had no heirs. They were unsuccessful. Eventually, the Duke marrying someone else, as often happened in Chanel's life. Chanel defiantly saying, There have been several duchesses of Westminster, but only one Chanel. She thinks highly of herself. The English market was open to Chanel during that time of her English connections, and her fashion empire continued to grow, her friendship with Churchill also later becoming key in saving her life. In 1935, she moved into the Hotel Ritz to live there in a permanent basis. 1935 was also the year that Chanel became a daily morphine user, introduced to her by a friend of hers. Bear that in mind that throughout the rest of her life, she is daily using morphine in various doses. Not the only one. This was actually a fairly common practice for certain Well, she could circles. afford it, and that's what it was. Then, on June 14, 1940, everything changed. The Germans captured Paris. World War II was in full swing, and Chanel closed her studio, saying, Now was not the time for fashion. She kept her perfume boutique open, though, and sold Chanel No. 5 to German soldiers so they could buy it for their sweethearts. In 1941, Chanel 57, but her age unaffecting her glamour and still living at the Ritz Hotel, she meets Baron von Dinklage, 13 years younger than her, and a Gestapo spy, a major asset to the Abwehr, the Nazi intelligence unit. With Baron von Dinklage, Chanel begins a relationship, and together they live in the Ritz, which was requisitioned by the Germans to serve as their headquarters. Chanel immediately socializing along with Baron von Dinklage with senior Nazi officials, entering the social circle of powerful Nazis. It was written of the time, While her fellow countrymen starved and died, Chanel lived like a queen at the Ritz, surrounded by Nazi officers and enjoying Nazi parties. 
Berlin ordered that the Ritz was reserved exclusively for the temporary accommodation of high-ranking personalities. And there she was, mingling amongst them all. She was always drawn to power and to powerful people. And from her and point of view... And those uniforms, come on. Well, um, maybe. Incidentally, the uniforms were designed by Hugo Boss, partially. Okay, the Nazi uniforms. Yeah. So. But she uh, decided that this is, at the moment, the people in power. And as we see later on, she was involved with a gentleman who was younger but admired her and wanted to be with her. And that was dictated, basically, her, her next years and what happened. Now, it's unsure when exactly Chanel learned the following information, but at some point she did learn that her nephew, André, a soldier in the French army, was captured and held in a prisoner of war camp in Germany. So, maybe this tinted the reason of her connection to the Nazis. Certainly, Chanel sympathizers have... I don't think so. I think, based on the other information, it's a stretch. But yeah, it, it, was, it was useful for both sides to have this information and for her to be able to help her nephew. You're jumping ahead. We don't know if she helps her nephew or not. So tell us. Well, later in 1941, Baron von Dinklage traveled to Berlin with his colleague, Valferland, to personally meet Hitler, the Abwehr learning of Chanel's fears of her nephew's life due to his imprisonment. So Chanel and the Abwehr struck a deal. André would be released if Chanel began working for them and utilized her powerful connections. Thus, now, now that, that is very, that is the beginning. This is how you would say intelligence organizations would start luring in people to work for them. Here was a, a bait. You want to save someone? You want to help You help us and we will help you. So this is how it starts. Yeah, we also saw it with uh, Vetrov, Farewell Vetrov, you know, where he, the car crash. So in this case, the hook. Yep. in this case, it was very clear to her. She didn't have a lot of family, because we know. Uh, she had two younger sisters, and probably this was one of the sons of one of the sisters. It's one of the sister's sons, and actually, if I remember correctly, the sister had actually passed away, and Chanel was quite close with this nephew. She so she felt paid for his she schooling could, and stuff. So, yeah. okay, she felt that's exactly the weak spot, and they used it. Now, if she would have done it without, to help without, I don't know, but this was a very good incentive. And, um, you know, there, there's always, uh, okay, what happens you release him? Do you... The person continues to work for you or is already hooked and he has no way out. In this case, I think it was uh, both. Mutually beneficial. Yes, I think she liked it. and uh, The ideology, and see, the ideology suited and her. And let's see exactly what she was asked to do and then we can talk about that. Chanel became Obver Agent F7124 in 1941, codenamed Westminster, after her former lover. Well, it shows the direction they want to go with her. It wasn't towards France or doing something in France. It was using her connections outside of France, in this case in England. Well, they already controlled France. It was more important for yes, them. Yes, but remember there was a resistance. and they, they, they were, But they didn't need her for the resistance. They needed her for something else. Right. Guided by Baron von Dinklage, Chanel and Valferland would travel to neutral Spain. From there, Chanel would travel to England to make contact with her important friends, allegedly to try to recruit other people. At the same time, during the Nazi rule in Paris, Chanel began attempting to reclaim her rights from the Wertheimer brothers, who fled to the U.S. before the Germans invaded. Chanel hoped to utilize the Nazis' Aryanization laws to take back the control she signed away to the Wertheimers in 1924. 
the Aryanization law basically forbade Jews from having any businesses. So she wanted to utilize that. She wrote to the government on May 5th, 1941, saying, Parfums Chanel is still the property of Jews and has been legally abandoned by the owner. I have an indisputable right of priority. The profits that I have received from my creations since the foundation of this business are disproportionate. The Wertheimers, however, had planned ahead. They had signed their business over to a non-Jewish businessman friend before fleeing. Incidentally, the Wertheimers also sent a spy, Herbert Gregory Thomas, under the pseudonym Don Armando Guevara Sotomayor, to retrieve the chemical formula to make Chanel No. 5, as well as to collect the necessary ingredients. Then, after successfully getting all of those, he brought it back to America, where they could continue production of Chanel No. 5 and sell the fragrance. How about that for tantalizing uh, corporate espionage? Well, that's the right thing to do. You know, you're going to move out. You know, there's problems. You see two steps ahead, and that's what they had to do to maintain their business. Corporate espionage, though, right? It's nice. Not really, because it was theirs. Theirs, but they still had to go into and, and Nazi Germany or Nazi France and then yes. get it. Yes. So they sent this guy. I mean, yes. could be a cool movie, actually. Yes. <laughs> Stealing the, the perfumes and the recipe. Yes. I what is it you smell? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I smell I Chanel. Yes. Um, yeah, I couldn't find much much detail about that particular little little bit, but it's quite cool, quite interesting. Eventually, Chanel was given the wartime profits from the sales of her perfume, equivalent to about $25 million a year in modern currency. Not, not bad. Not too bad. Back to Chanel's first mission, agent number 7124 in 1941, traveled to Spain to deal with British diplomats. The details of her trip, however, unfortunately, are quite unknown. There was no documentation ever recovered from her mission. However, on her return to Paris in the winter of 1941, her nephew Andre was released. What kind of mission? Let's speculate. She was sent there to recruit, right? In Spain I, or I, try to get to the England and recruit there. I don't necessarily think to recruit, but to get information about what's going on and to see if there's a sympathizers. She had a name. It wasn't like she was an unknown person. Right. She couldn't go and say, oh, okay, I'm someone else. No, she had to go as Coco Chanel. Of course. She had to go then, Coco Chanel was, where are you coming from? They knew she lived in, in the Ritz. She was with the Germans. So you she look for sympathizers. She probably couldn't get to England very easily, but at the same time, she could send a letter, let's say, to the Duke of Westminster and say, hey, I'm in Spain. Why don't you come say hi? Or other people, which Spain was neutral, and so those people could potentially travel to Spain. Well, they wouldn't do that for her, but they could, giving her the nickname they gave the Germans, that means the objective was to get to the Duke because it's close to Churchill. So that, I would say, is the objective of her recruitment. And to get information and to maybe sway certain people. And yes. later we'll see an, another reason that yes. they, they're using her. Well, what kind of training might she have received, if any? None. None at all? She should have, but I don't think she got training because what did she do? I mean, she's her um, on her name. It's just being herself. I don't see, I mean, you could say, yes, she had training, but we have evidence of any training? Nothing. No, I'm speculating what kind of training might she have received, like how to write coded messages or different things like that. But no, then I don't think so. It wouldn't have been necessary because she was in Spain, which was neutral, but neutral slash tilted towards well, the, the Nazis. Is, so. was the, her German friend with her? If he was, then she just came back 
to the hotel and told him, or the where she was staying, and told him what was going on. No need to do anything. Yeah. She wasn't under surveillance. She didn't have to do surveillance. Yeah, just I mean, to report to someone. Vofferland was with her, so. I would say that would be the right thing to do from his point of view. He was with her, sent her on a mission, sent her to meet people, get her information in the evening. He would write home eventually if he needed to. What we do know, we understand from that, that her nephew was released. So apparently what she did was reported in a way that the Germans felt that she did her part of the bargain at that stage. They were satisfied enough, or her nephew was less important and they wanted to... No, no. They, they wouldn't have released him. But what if they wanted to gesture of faith to keep on reeling her or something? I don't know. They felt that she was on board. That means she was on their side. That was their feeling. Would she have traveled to the UK? Would that have been possible, Pro- do you think? Yes. Yes, she's a French national. She could travel. She, she knows people. Not a problem to get on a boat and travel. Even with the, the connections and different things that she might have yes. had. So it's possible she traveled all the way to the UK in yes. that trip. But I don't think she did because I don't think her German friend went with her. And I think she'll need her German friend with her. That's and he true. won't go to the UK. And probably if she went to the UK, we would have passports stamped or documentation. There would have been something. And I don't think there's any, yeah, we, at least I don't think there's any evidence of that. Right. But I think the main thing is, if you call it the, her case officer, the German guy, he would want to be with her and he wouldn't want her to be here in the UK by herself. But she would, he wouldn't be with her at all times. He would be just in the hotel waiting right. or sending her to right. this coffee shop right. and him being across the Correct. street kind of thing. Yes. Watching. Not necessarily. Why do you think Baron von Dinklage didn't go with her? Too important, too high up to risk going to Spain? It could be. We don't know a lot about his other activities. We don't know if this was his main uh, source, you could say, or he was too close or to give it a better chance because he's a known figure. We don't know. It's more professional that he didn't go. Yeah. Could have saved them budget, you know. They could have shared a hotel room. It's all about receipts, right? Not in those days. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In spite of whatever successes Chanel may have had, the war continued and the successes of the Nazis seemed to be diminishing. Allied forces were gaining against Hitler. And in April of 1943, Chanel made one of two visits to Berlin to meet with the head of the SS, who wanted Chanel to send word to her old friend, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. The SS officer, Walter Schellenberg, initiating Operation Model Hut. 
Operation Model Hut, named after Chanel's boater hat. Interesting that she traveled to Berlin twice during the war. No. No? No. It wasn't... If she was, uh, you know, it was occupied, but she had nothing to fear. The trains were running. She had a German patron, you would say. Someone who took care of her. Uh, she was an important person, wealthy. She was, uh, had her selling her stuff anyway. She was a, a name. There was no fear from her point of view to travel. She wasn't suspected by the Germans. On the contrary, she was an asset of the Germans. And uh, good idea to take her there. Now, I'm looking at it from a different angle, and that is they asked her to come, or at least from what you just told me, they were aware of her connections, and that, is, that was the interesting part. Because if you look at the, her story, someone in the headquarters, the German intelligence, knew that she has the capability to be close or have friends who are close or send messages or try and do something to very prominent people in the UK. Now, that means that she was known. She didn't come and say, volunteer to do it, as, as far as we understand. Her German friend, Handler, reported back to his headquarters, look, this lady is capable of doing certain things. Let's use her for something. At a certain point, the German headquarters decided, okay, let's send her. But before they sent her, they wanted to see who, what it's all about. So let's say she came first for, to see, to have a talk to her, to understand her capabilities, to see if it's possible. And they said, you know what? Interesting. We went back home. And then I think they decided to send her on a mission, according to what I understand from you to give her the actual, after making a decision to do something, bring her back to Berlin, give her the briefing, and ask her to go. Maybe also just to converse and see what other things that she could provide as the situation escalated, because there is conflicting information as to who initiated what. Did Chanel initiate the contact and offer to work? Did they initiate? If we could give the more favorable, from history's point of view, perspective, was she initially doing this to try to help her nephew? Did she initiate it? You know, the nephew is no longer the picture. Nephew's no, he's no longer, but initially. Yeah, he started, the nephew had started it, and he got released. She was still working for them. She didn't want anything else from that aspect. She was a sympathizer. They knew that. She was against the Jews. They knew that. She wanted to get her business back. They knew that. She had connections in England that were actually real connections. They knew that. They gave her the nickname under pretense that she can get to these people. So why not use it? It's a good agent to have, no? It's a good good asset to have. Depends on the message. Now, it could be two things. One, to see what, for espionage. And I don't think that was the case. To just gather information. To gather information. Or... To send a message. To send a message about certain conditions that they would want or give or very specific people who wanted to take care of themselves knowing that the Germans might be losing and they wanted maybe to see if they can strike a deal. And that's a person you send. And I think that, in my mind, that's the directions that probably they would want to go. Now, I don't know if we've talked too much about this on the show, but you and I have talked about this a little bit more privately, and that's the diplomatic connections that exist in the espionage world, in that there are connections between countries at times that exist, but they're not official. They exist in the back channels. Correct. Through these kind of operations. Correct. Where you can't officially send a diplomat, right? So it could be that she's serving this role, as you've said, an opportunity for 
the intelligence through a third party, through someone who's working for them, whatever you want to call it, to connect to another organization, another nation, to share their interests. To do diplomacy. It's, it's, it's a time of war, and you want to have a channel that's not official, the official channel, yeah. and you don't want to risk it. So let's see what happens. Well, okay. Did she actually go? Well, the French historian Henri Gidel Vaughan, or Henri Gidel Vaughan, <laughs> if I'm a... Henri. Henri Gidel Vaughan. Henri. Henri. <laughs> There's so many different ways you can say Henri in a French accent. <laughs> Henri Gidel Vaughan writes, Chanel thought she could barter her friendship with Winston Churchill to persuade the Nazis that she and Dinklage had the contacts to broker a separate peace deal with Britain. So that's the French perspective, or that's his perspective, that she thought that she could broker a, a deal. Why would she want to broker a deal? Well, as I mentioned, the tides were turning against the Nazis. D-Day had occurred. Nazis were losing ground. The Soviets were against them. They were pushing on the Eastern Front as well. In 1944, Chanel wrote Churchill a letter referring obliquely to her German connections. It is unclear if the letter was received, or if it was. So we're not, we don't understand from this that if she actually traveled to the UK or just sent a message. What do we understand? Well, we'll get there. She, she initially sent letter, tried to make some sort of connection, and then she devised a plan with Baron von Dinklage. With the help of her old friend, Vera Bates Lombardi, and the Duke of Westminster, they would get in touch with Churchill. She was to inform Churchill that a group of German officers wanted to remove Hitler and end the war with England. This is exactly what you were saying. This back channel, people in the upper command wanting to end what was going on. A lot of people, maybe not a lot, but there were a certain amount of people in the Nazi high command who started doubting Hitler's capabilities towards the end as the tides were turning. Hitler was becoming more irrational and erratic in his decision-making. Also, possibly due to drug use or... That's definitely due to drug use. He was using drugs, but we don't know how much that was affecting his mind. Anyway, the point is people may have exactly what I just said, tried or wanted to overthrow him and, and barter some sort of deal with the Brits. Chanel and the Germans arranged for her old friend Vera Bate Lombardi to be released from an Italian prison. She was being held there for about a week under suspicion of being a British spy, actually. Though she was not. There is no official documentation of her ever yes. being a British spy. It was just... A thing that happened. Yes, it, it happens all the time. Vera Bate Lombardi would help Chanel in Spain. After all, she's the one who connected her to the Duke of Westminster, and she was a British socialite, etc., etc. Acting under the cover of a business trip, they would be going there to explore the possibilities of setting up a Chanel couture in Madrid. Things, however, did not go to plan. Vera Bate Lombardi, carrying Chanel's letter to the British embassy, immediately confessed to the authorities once arriving in Madrid admitting to being a German asset and naming Chanel as an informer. Chanel was not caught, however, and quickly escaped back to Paris. Also, Spain was neutral, so don't know how much jurisdiction they had there to capture her. That was Operation Modelot. Well, they didn't manage to get the message. She wrote letters. We don't know if they arrived. If they did, we don't know how Churchill took them. Then when she traveled to Spain with this whole plan to inform Churchill that there was this coup that they wanted to do and broker a peace, it immediately fell apart when her friend confessed to the whole ordeal. Not, not so great, this, this mission number two of her spying career. No, it didn't work out. Uh, but again, if you look at it, it, it wasn't so much of a spying than to try and make a contact or use her as a connection for the people in Germany who wanted to send a message. 
and maybe start a dialogue and from there see what they can do. It was it was a fishing expedition. Um, someone had to know about the lady being caught. So only a week and you, everybody knew about it. There was supposed to be part of this deal. That means that there was everybody was connected. Probably they might have even captured the lady as well in advance to use her. You don't know, but it's interesting to find out. Oh, in Italy? You mean Vera Bates? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it was coincidence. Or maybe Chanel found out that Vera was there and asked her for German friends to release her and used that as a way to do something and it then didn't turn out. But at least for Vera, it was a worthwhile It was helpful to be released she, from she prison. Got, yeah. She got out. Yeah. Inter- why, why didn't... Um, why weren't weren't any of the German intelligence traveling with them this time, do you think? We don't know. They didn't. First of all, they trusted her already. Towards the end of the war, wasn't the end of the war, but more risky. They wanted to keep it genuine. And if it was a specific request from a very specific person, it might have been something that wasn't 100% authorized by everybody, and it was more of a private venture that they tried to do for themselves mm-hmm. to try and secure themselves a better future afterwards. I think that is more probable. Right. Whatever the case may be, August 1944, Paris was liberated. Chanel offering Chanel No. 5 free to American GIs. And days later, the French government arrested her. But after hours of interrogation, they released her due to a lack of hard evidence. Questioned on her ties to her Nazi lovers, Chanel replied, Really, monsieur? A woman of my age cannot be expected to look at his passport if she has a chance of a lover. Some believe Chanel's release was orchestrated by Churchill. However, there's no clear proof. A theory Hal Vaughn proposes in his book, Sleeping with the Enemy, was that Chanel knew that Churchill had violated his own Trading with the Enemy Act by secretly paying Germans to protect the Duke of Windsor's property in Paris. Yeah, she could have revealed that and it wouldn't have gone down so well. So maybe, maybe. I, I certainly think uh, his, his friendship helped. 10,000 Parisians were tried for treason after the liberation. 8,000 of them were convicted and 116 were executed. Chanel was not one of them. Chanel's interrogation was never made public by the French government. There was, after all, not much desire to reopen the complicated and uncertain case. Halvon writing... By 1949, few officials were interested in connecting the dots that led to Chanel's betrayal of France. The details of her collaboration with the Nazis were hidden for years in French, German, Italian, Soviet, and U.S. archives. Well, Chanel, Coco Chanel, was a French icon. Yes. You don't want it to be mixed up with Germans and Nazis and the people that were perceived, perceived at that time to be the bad guys or the unpopular guys. I would hope that they're still perceived when anyone listens to this episode as the bad guys. Yes, but Germany as Germany is not the same Germany as now. No, but the Nazis, But the Nazis is a different case. And therefore, from her point of view, she tried everything she could to hide that connection and that contact. And she did a couple of things about it, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But again, if you look at it, was it beneficial for the French to prosecute her, put her on trial? Did she betray... Anything about France? Probably not. She wasn't spying against French people. Probably not. Was she living a, a life as a collaborator? Yes. 
But is that was that a crime at the time? A lot of people in that time. Yeah. Lived well, that's what I was saying. A lot of French women who slept with uh, yes, Nazis were the, were humiliated in the streets and branded traitors, and their heads were shaved. And this happened all across Europe. Chanel was not one of them. No. After her release, Chanel quickly left France to live in neutral Switzerland. With who? With Baron von Dinklage. They stayed in a luxury hotel in Saint Moritz. She had lots of money. Saint Moritz. Right? She had lots of money. Yes. Probably in Swiss banks. Yes. SS officer Walter Schellenberg, who came up with Operation Model Hut, was tried as a war criminal and served six years. He was released in 1951 due to poor health, and he died of cancer the following year. Why am I mentioning all this? Well, Chanel paid for his medical care and financially supported his family, as well as paid for his funeral expenses. He was writing his memoirs, and it was said, with little help and nudging from Chanel, she ensured that her name was never mentioned. This is what you use your money for. Chanel tried suing Pierre Wertheimer to regain her company after the war and came to an agreement. Chanel reduced her stake in the company to 2%, merging her perfume and fashion business, while Pierre Wertheimer would cover all of Chanel's expenses for the rest of her life. All of her expenses. Everything. As well as assisting... She didn't have to submit receipts, right? If she did, it didn't matter what she was sending them for. Okay. As well as assisting in her return to the fashion business in 1954. 1954 happened to be the year that Chanel and Baron von Dinklage also ended their relationship. Baron von Dinklage dying 20 years later in Spain. Coincidence or convenient? He couldn't stay in France. He couldn't go to France, that's right. for sure. She could. Yes. She was given an opportunity so and long. she was already six, in her 60s. She wasn't already more on the elderly side. Yes. On January 10th, 1971, Chanel died at the Ritz in Paris, where she had lived most of her life. She was never questioned about her relationship with Baron von Dinklage or about her collaboration with the Obver, which was never made public during her life. The French writer and resistance heroine Edmond Charles Roux published the book Chanel, Her Life, Her World, and the woman behind the legend she herself created three years after Chanel's death. And the truth of Chanel's life began to slowly trickle out. 1995, the French weekly L'Express uncovered compromising testimony which in 2008 was added to by its German counterpart, Der Spiegel. 2011, Hal Vaughn published Sleeping with the Enemy, revealing the warts and all of Chanel's life story. Hal Vaughn relied heavily on declassified French and German documents and was supported by French, German, British, Italian, and Polish archives. The French writer Edmond Chaux-Roux, before her death in 2016, insisted Chanel never said anything anti-Semitic, saying, I wouldn't have put up with it. After the publishing of Halvon's book, the Wertheimer family, who still own Chanel to this day, denied she was anti-Semitic. They were quoted as saying that there was an element of mystery about what exactly Chanel did during the war. In 2023, documents alleged that Chanel worked with the French resistance and was a member of the Eric Network, a membership card belonging to Chanel discovered in a French national archive by Chanel biographer Justine Picardi. Historian Guillaume Pollack disputes the evidence, saying the membership card was issued in 1957, and clearly there was a section whited out before Eric was written, and there's no supporting evidence from witnesses on file that she was ever in the resistance. Eric also primarily operated in the Balkans, 
not anywhere where Chanel ever lived. So a bit of revisionist history, I think, on that one. I don't think she was involved in that sort of stuff. It wasn't in her character. I had to put it in there. It's something I came across. You okay. know, I, I don't want to paint Chanel in such a bad light. You know, I have no, to. No, she's a survivor. I, I, she, she had to do what she had to do to all her life. She was dumped by her father in a monastery. She had to make a choice, a very young age, what she wants to do with her life and what direction she wants to take. To live or to join a convent? Yes. And she chose and then, to live. And then she worked in a number of jobs to make herself have enough to support herself. It, it, by the way, if you're listening from a convent, we appreciate your work and thank you for listening. I agree to that. But it's, it takes a different life. And in this case, she had to make a choice. And she had apparently good enough looks to have admirers. And she worked in the right places where these people that could support her were coming to. And uh, she she came from such a, a, a low background that you can admire what she managed to achieve, if you think about it. I mean, it's quite amazing. Yeah. Time magazine put her in the top 100 most important people of the century. She's the only fashion designer there. She revolutionized women's fashion, normalizing and popularizing women wearing trousers, women wearing suits, and the iconic little black dress, as well as ending corsets. Chanel Number no. 5 was the best-selling perfume in the world. Marilyn Monroe even enticingly saying that she went to bed wearing only a few drops of Chanel Number no. 5. Okay, I won't say what I want to say about that, but let's continue. Chanel is still owned today by the Wertheimers, Pierre's grandchildren, and it's understood why the Nazi affiliation would not be brought to attention or highlighted. Why meddle with a good business, right? Incidentally, Halvon's book Sleeping with the Enemy? Yet to be translated to French. Interesting. Would you hire her? For very specific missions. Again, we were talking about different spies and different... Remember we talked about Virginia Hall mm -hmm. and the different characters she was able to, to do and put yeah. on. That, that's working undercover. That's working disguised, not being yourself. Coco Chanel was Coco Chanel. She didn't go anywhere else to say she was something else. So you only can sell what you are and the connections she has. Now, in a time of war, the connections you, she had were interesting and important. She wanted something. She wanted to save her, 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 her nephew, and she did. Germans realized, wait a minute, she could be an asset to us. They tried her once in, in Spain. She never left England to England or anywhere else. We don't know if she did anything. And again, because she was related, I won't say related, because she was in a relationship with the handler, he, wouldn't gonna, he won't risk her. So for him, his point of view, she was a great cover for him to be staying in the Ritz well, it was the German HQ. They would have been staying there anyway. Yes, but still it's different. He was there and he was able then to mix in the French, you would say, people that were there that were influential people. So it served a purpose from their point of view. She wasn't asked to spy on them as far as we understand. Just be herself. But I think, as I said earlier, when the heads of the German intelligence decided that maybe they could send her to send a message to Churchill or she's a channel to Churchill, this is where she really was an important asset to them. From that point of view, yes, you would want people like that. You don't just waste Connected them on... Connected people. People that has, have connections. And I think that, that was important, and that's where they used her. Do those with dark sins make good spies? Is that a rhetoric question? 
well, we've kind of talked about this, but it's not necessarily dark sins, but assets, you know, people that you can utilize. Yeah, if they have dark secrets or sins or whatever you want to call them, then you can leverage those to get them to do things. Now, remember when we did Matahari, it was all about the money and she was promised money and she never got it. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge amount of money and remember it was like millions or something. And we said, how can you pay that kind of money? She didn't need money, really. No, she Ch- studied Chanel, the Ritz. Chanel she never, did it never from an ideology knew. point of view. Yes, she never needed the money. It wasn't a, nothing. It was never about the money. Never about the money. So what was it about? It was about excitement, about making her feel important, about uh, ideology. That was all about. It wasn't about the money with her, and it was just. I'm in France. I'm occupied by Germans. They're the masters. I'll work with them to improve my situation. Yes, it so happens a couple of things I agree about. It's an opportunity maybe I get more percentage of my business. In the end, it was she did very well by having the business moved away from to the United States because she made money on the, on the sales they made afterwards. And the work timers were very good to her. Yes, because they realized that even, you know, Chanel is Chanel. So the name was her. They, they understood her the away. branding. Exactly. So they were clever enough to realize that it's not... On the big picture, it wasn't worthwhile... Um, Dumping her and just uh, doing something by themselves. Yeah, I don't think people would have bought Wertheimers. Wertheimers, oh. Well, I've got to get that Wertheimer purse. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe didn't put a Wertheimer on her before she got to bed. No. So that wasn't Wertheimer, the case. Wertheimer number five. <laughs> yes. Doesn't have the same ring. No, but Chanel. It has a, it has a ring to uh, it. Yes, yes. So I think, was she a spy? I won't say she was a spy in, the con- in a conventional way, but did she collaborate with the, with the Nazis? Yes. Was she involved with the Nazis? Yes. And it, she it, was an agent some, for the obverse. She yes, had a, she had a, a, a yes, number and everything. Exactly. So, as you re- said in the beginning, she wanted to rewrite her history. And that part of her history, she didn't want it to be the main part of her life. Incidentally, she, she used to make up stories about her childhood, that she didn't grow up in an orphanage, that she lived with aunties and different things. So she was constantly revising because the story she, of again, she, she didn't saw want, herself in a different way than yes. what she was. And she didn't want the Nazi period because it was everybody was against it and she realized afterwards it's not an asset anymore to say that. So she had to hide it. And well, I mean, certainly if the Nazis would have won, it would have been fine, right? Right, but that's for not her. <laughs> for her. But is that, not, that wasn't the case. Right, thankfully. Value of connections. Access to assets. What does one look for in an asset? When the Germans realize that she is connected to very influential British people, what do you do? Do you ignore it or do you use it when you need to? And I think they were clever to use it at a very specific time. Now, as I said earlier, was it a message, a private message sent by individuals in the leadership of the German intelligence who wanted a way out and find a way to send a message to the British that maybe they can work with them? And that was orchestrated by, you would say, the organization and the German intelligence as an intelligence, or was by individuals, even the head of the intelligence, who was looking for a ticket for himself to save himself and others. The fact, in my opinion, and I think that, uh, by the way, that's what I think that's happened, but as well, the fact that they fled to immediately to Switzerland after the war uh, proves that uh, he realized that it's better to keep away from anything and uh, she went with him. Yeah, I mean... She could have stayed in, in in France. Well, her reputation was also tarnished, you know, even though they didn't prosecute, people knew and spoke. 
Well, her business was still there. You know, she sell, you said she was selling the perfume for free for the Americans. Well, she gave it you away know? when they first invaded. And, yes, then, and then, then, of course, then... Then she left. Yes. It was better not to stick around exactly. for her. Although it was a time where the things were booming, the you know, the with rebuilding of Europe afterwards, that was a good time to be there. But she decided, better keep away. Bad time because of what she had done. She I think, And if you look at it as well, all the business deal was that she's not involved in the business yeah she wasn't involved she just, in anyway. she's just as the name and when so, she came back it it was designing new things not yes. doing new business so that's what i was saying the wartimers were still she was still right. getting money you know she right. still had percentages just that was never name. yes cut off and, right. and, and the wartimers were very good to her in the expenses and everything and, and not yes. pushing anything ever so and it was a win-win for both of them yeah. they don't mention her activities and she doesn't want it to be brought up exactly tit for tat Anything else you want to say? No. Mm, I, I think it's an interesting story because of uh, the angle of a woman who was used as an asset, but her handler was as well her lover. I, I imagine that certainly today yeah. that's frowned upon, a handler entwining themselves romantically with an asset. That is not exactly the professional way to do it. I'm assuming it does happen, though, on occasion, but it's probably not in the rule book right, of things to, right. to do. And I liked her answer by saying that I'm a 57-year-old woman and if I find a lover who wants me, then I don't check I don't his passport. passport. Yeah. Nice answer. Yeah, she was. Uh, she had a wit, that's yes. for sure. So they said, yeah, okay, this is a lady we don't want to deal with. Right. It leads us very nicely into final words. How would Chanel take all of this? Well, perhaps she'd simply say, as she did before... Gentleness doesn't get work done unless you happen to be a hen laying eggs. I don't care what you think of me. I don't think of you at all. When you're feeling sad, add more lipstick and attack. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening, and remember... When you put perfume on, you never know where it came from. That's for sure. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. It really does help. So if you feel like leaving a review, it really does help. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Thank you, Lisa, for your awesome episode idea. And we hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 